0: Uh, I'm Matt Reed. I'm the CEO of the foundation in the UK, uh, but for three years I was the CEO of the foundation in India. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Tinny Sawney here tonight. Uh, Tinny was my deputy uh, in India for, for two years, and she was an advisor to me in the first year. Um, uh, nobody knows our programs and the communities that we work in better than Tinny. Um, and, and I hope that you'll hear. Uh, a bit of that tonight. Uh, There could not have been a better representative of the foundation uh, in India leaving, and so I'm really pleased that she's there uh, and that she's here with us tonight. Um, The foundation in India works in six states. We're present in Gujarat, in Madhya Pradesh, in Bihar, in Uttar Pradesh. We have programs in Delhi and Hyderabad. Uh, We work in a holistic fashion in multiple sectors. Um, rural, lively, rural and urban livelihoods and natural resource management, climate change adaptation these days. We do a lot of work in water and sanitation, uh, in promoting community health and healthy behaviors, uh, in education, uh, helping kids, very young children learn to read uh, at, at what, essentially the preschool level, so creating early childhood development sec- uh, uh, centers, helping them get into school and then working with public schools uh, to make their classrooms better. Um, uh, Across all of that work, uh, there are two cross-cutting themes. The first is uh, promoting self-reliance through civil society uh, and, and community groups, and the second is women's empowerment. And it's tonight uh, that we want Tini to, to talk to us a bit more about those, those last two aspects of our work and why they're, they're so important to us. And so, Tini, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so
1: much. I mean, it's a great honor to be here and to speak about the work we're doing in India. So I thank you all immensely for uh, hosting me here and I look forward uh, to sharing with you the work that we do in India.
0: Well, why don't we start with telling us a little bit about you. I mean, where did you grow up? How did you get into development?
1: So I was a regular city kid. Uh, uh, I didn't really know much about rural India, except from what we saw as you know we drove past the villages and all of that. I did my uh, graduation in economics, and I was very keen to uh, go to a B school. So the Institute of Rural Management has management in its name. And I cleared the entrance uh, examination for that. And I landed up at the Institute. The Institute has been founded by one of um, in th- the father of India's milk revolution, Dr. Verghese Kurian. And uh, it is grounded in the ethos of creating community institutions and farmers groups uh, and farmer collectives to access markets and get better prices for their products. Um, It was only after I'd completed the first term. We have what is called a rural stint. It was my first real exposure to rural India. I lived in a village in Uttar Pradesh, one of India's, uh, uh, I'd say, on human development indexes. It's one of the uh, lowest in uh, the country. I lived in a village for about two months, and um, the house which hosted me was the only house in the village that actually had a toilet. I belonged to an upper caste uh, family and it was the first time that I'd actually really experienced the issue of caste dynamics. The work of women. So along with other women, uh, I too had to draw water from a well. It was the first time freezing cold water. And uh, one realized the hardships that India, uh, rural people in India's villages really go through on a day-to-day basis. Women worked very hard, morning to evening. No time for themselves. Uh, As a part of our work at Irma, we had to do um, a case study. And I chose uh, to to profile the life of a young bride in that village and how her aspirations had, in a way, died after she came to this new home and all what she had to do. So there was a lot of potential, but it just had to conform to the patriarchal society that she found herself uh, in. For me, that was a great definer. we used to hear a lot about mahatma gandhi saying that india resides in its villages but having that experience firsthand up front made me feel that if we really need to change if we really need to bring development to india it's perhaps we need to start with our villages so i think after i came back after this two month stint in the village i knew that this was the kind of work that i always wanted to do and continue with that so i mean that's how i chanced upon development as a career. I've been in the development sector now for over 27 years, and I've never regretted the decision. Um, It is a a journey that has taught me a lot. I've grown personally, professionally, learned so much, and contributed a bit to bringing about lasting change.
0: I mean, what did your, if you don't mind me asking, what did your parents think? I mean, Irma, you know, if you can get into Irma, you could have gotten into an IIT, uh, and so, Uh, was that? Were, what did they say at home about your choice to, to devote yourself to, to, to this?
1: Um, while I completed my education, I think my parents were fine about it. But when I chose to actually go out and live in a village, my father said, that's not something I want my daughter uh, to do. So he came with me and um, it was a really remote part of uh, uh, in a state of Rajasthan and I worked around a tiger reserve. And it was quite a difficult area. But going with me into the villages, and my father, I think, understood the passion that I felt. And he too, I think, understood it. It was a lot of time later that my mother actually understood what I really did. She used to ask me, OK, what do you do when you go into a village? What do you tell people? You don't know about farming. What do you go and (laughs) tell uh, uh, people? And I, I used to tell my mother, we we asked them to form collectives because that's the power of change. You can't do things on your own, but if you are together with others, you can you can bring about change. But it was much later when my mother travelled with me out to the villages and she sat with me in one of the village meetings that she really realised what it was. And when women told her how things had changed for them because of things that I had brought into that community, she too felt a bit proud. But otherwise, she was always hesitant to tell people that her daughter worked in uh, villages. My sisters as well. Um, uh, I remember when, uh, uh, you know, about the. W- w- you go to villages and whatever you wear, you're better dressed than everyone else. Poverty is very stark in our country. So my sisters would leave all their old kurtas and say, you go to villages. You can wear uh, those. Till my mother started saying, "I mean, come on." She also can buy some new clothes for herself. She works in the villages, but it's not that she's kind of marginalized. So it took a while for my family to really understand what I did, what was the kind of change that we were trying to bring about. So it was some time down that journey.
0: And then at some point, you heard about AKF, and you and you started working for us, uh, and that was at least by my count, at least 15 or more years ago. And so, tell us a little bit about that. How had you heard about AKF what, what, uh, and how did you come to, to work for us?
1: Um, So I joined AKF in 2002. Um, I was very much aware of the work of AKF, largely its very strong community-oriented approach. Um, uh, It had pioneered this very strong approach rooted in understanding community issues, community problems, working with communities to develop plans for themselves so that an over course of time, the community can actually lead the development process. That was quite well known uh, in development circles at that time, so one really knew about the work of uh, uh, the Aga Khan Foundation. I was working with the Danish International Development Assistance. A lot of my work was with the government. The government is a very large bureaucracy, and there was a bit of tiring with that process. I was approached by the Agar Khan Foundation to lead their work on rural development, and um, I came into the foundation at that time, uh, and so has been my journey. It's been a long uh, and very exciting journey since then.
0: So that was in 2002. And what states were you focused on then? Where did you start in that regard?
1: Um, We were in Gujarat at that time. Our programs, uh, so in 1983, we had started our work in Gujarat. Um, uh, uh, in three regions of uh, uh, Gujarat. We benefited considerably from the immense goodwill that the Jamaat had in uh, uh, Gujarat, and that is where our intervention started. When I joined in 2002, there was a plan to expand the work that the Foundation had done to other states, to take this very strong community-rooted approach into other states of India. So we expanded our work into Madhya Pradesh, Uh, The tribal areas of Madhya Pradesh, which are extremely marginalized, where uh, poverty is really uh, uh, stark. And we took those approaches that we had honed over the years in Gujarat into this new state of Madhya Pradesh. And we've now been in Madhya Pradesh since 2003. So uh, I was a part of that process of expanding into uh, uh, new states. Tell us a bit
0: about the rationale for that expansion. You know, because the question that uh, often comes up in meetings that I had with people who, who happened not to know about the foundation was, um, do you only work with the smileys? And of course, in that panorama, uh, you don't only work with them. So tell us a little bit about the, the rationale for, for working there and then the expansion that's, that's taken place since then.
1: We also needed to prove to ourselves that the approaches that we have developed in Gujarat, which is a state of, I would say, comfort for us, we have a lot of goodwill in Gujarat. We are known uh, uh, quite well by uh, the long history of investment that AKDN, uh, uh, the Khan Development Network, has in Gujarat, right from the first school that was set up in 1905 in Mundra. We needed to take those approaches to a new state to also prove that we are a national organization and we're not just focused on a single state. So our expansion into Madhya Pradesh was guided by the fact that we needed to move to poorer areas. Gujarat is relatively better developed amongst the various states that we work in. So our first expansion was uh, Madhya Pradesh. The expansion to Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. Followed from a request uh, made by our Prime Minister to His Highness uh, in 2006, uh, there was a, a very high-level committee report had come out at that time in India. It's called the Satchar Committee Report, and in the back tr- and that report actually brought out the extreme marginalisation of religious minorities in India primarily Muslim minorities, and it was against that backdrop that the Prime Minister Manmohan Singh requested His Highness that could you take the approaches and the work that you've done in Gujarat to these states which are amongst our least developed states and where there is a large number of marginalised communities, including Muslim minorities, So we actually responded to a request from the highest levels of our government and we moved into uh, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar in 2007 and 2008. And we've been working uh, uh, since then in those two states as well. Uh, Telangana uh, uh, is a state that uh, we have had investments in and it's a state that we have been working in on school development for some time. So that has actually been the expansion of our work. Our current interventions we're in over 2,500 villages in these states benefiting over a million uh, people, a range of interventions from education to early childhood development, agriculture improvement, skill development, uh, uh, watershed and water conservation, drinking water and sanitation, so it's a range of interventions that we actually implement in uh, uh, these various uh, states.
0: And and what are the communities that you're working with in the States? I mean, His Highness asks every year uh, for an uh, an update on that. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of communities, where they're from, that sort of thing.
1: So we work with communities that are extremely marginalized, and they belong to uh, uh, amongst India's poorest communities. That is a definer for us when we identify regions. So, for example, the state of Bihar, we've actually picked, pockets of poverty in the state to work on. We work with all communities. It is in keeping with our ethos of inclusive development, pluralism, underwrites all of the work that we do. So when we go into a community, we work with all households in that community, but more specifically with those who are marginalized. And we try to bring them up to the level of others uh, in uh, uh, the village. So it is amongst the poorest that we uh, uh, work in minority communities, Dalits, Dalits are, in India we have a caste system, so the lowest amongst our caste are called Dalits, a large percentage of our beneficiary communities are from, Dalit, uh, 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 from the Dalit caste, so that's in a way the, uh, uh, the type of communities that we work with.
0: And when you speak about marginalization, um, I mean, it, uh, it, I think the, the question that comes uh, next is, talk a little bit about uh, the effect of, uh, uh, well, I, I suppose I'd say about the condition of women who live in these marginalized communities. Why is it that the foundation does spend so much time working with women uh, in these communities across that range of states?
1: We sometimes say that perhaps women are the marginalized among the marginalized. I mean, India is quite a paradox in that we have uh, some of the, perhaps the highest rate of economic growth in the region. I mean, perhaps China is just, uh, 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 it has a higher rate of economic growth than we do. But it's we've, we see, we've seen a lot of urbanization, modernization. I mean, can, you can go to our villages and everyone has mobile phones, but it's a modernization that is actually built on a very strong foundation of tradition and patriarchy. Uh, and women are often the ones who are at the receiving end of that kind of deprivation. This modernization has also led to a severe backlash against women. We have some of the highest rates of domestic violence in uh, uh, the world, I should say. For example, Bihar, the state that we work in, almost two-thirds of women have actually reported uh, uh, domestic violence. So it's a very stark uh, situation for women. If we look at three defining indicators, uh, say the child sex ratio, in India, it's 940 girls for a 1,000 uh, boys. That's really poor. There is this whole phenomena of missing girls in India. And as we move up the age ladder, between the age of 7 and 15, the re- sex ratio is even worse. Workforce participation for women, it's really It's really quite low in our country. Just 25% of all women actually work. But that's also how do you define work. Women farmers, for example, they're not even recognized as playing such an important productive uh, role. So our work with women is actually to bring that equality. It's enshrined in our constitution. So what we are trying to do is to Keep up the, the, the word that we've given to ourselves of equality for everyone in our constitution. So our work with women and adolescent girls is in keeping with that ethos, of bringing them as uh, uh, you know citizens in their own right, giving them the self-respect and the dignity that they deserve.
0: I mean, it's a striking statistic, you know, 25 percent participation in the workforce. That kind of uh, uh, that the additional labor. Uh, Etc. I mean, one of the things that His Highness talks about is then you know uh, the the necessity to have half of your country contributing to uh, to the country's development. I mean, can you say a little bit about uh, you know if we were say to 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 zone in a bit on Gujarat, for example, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the the condition the condition of, of women there, some of the dynamics that that play into. To, 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 I guess, to to village life, to development, and then some of our work.
1: So Gujarat is one of India's more prosperous uh, states. But if one were to look at the condition of women, if one were to look at the sex ratio, it is a declining sex ratio. There are many young girls who are, uh, uh, you know, killed before they have even reached their full uh, potential. Access to productive resources. I remember one woman telling me, in a meeting, we have in a training program and then she stood up and she said, you ask me what my assets are, the only thing I can really call my own is just my sickle that I use to weed uh, in the fields, everything else is my husband's but don't I work equally as much as he does, so things like access to productive resources Um, our law provides equal inheritance rights for girls but it's never translated into practice, so when you go into a village and you ask head of household. It is always the male member, even if it is a son and the mother is uh, uh, still uh, there. The mother is never really, is never mentioned. So even in our uh, progressive states, the role of women and their recognition isn't at the level that we uh, would like it to be. So a lot of our work in Gujarat is also focused on building women's collectives to be able to get that strength to actually fight for their rights, access entitlements that are given to them by the government.
0: And so, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the, you know, as, as you talk about things like patriarchy, about social attitudes, you know, these sorts of things that seem so deeply rooted uh, in the society, even in the face of modernization. Um, and it, it's not immediate, uh, I think, to a casual observer how, uh, programs can go about breaking those things. Uh, and so talk to me a little bit about how we deal with that uh, in, in the programs uh, uh, across that range of, 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 of villages and, 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 and cultures, frankly.
1: Um, so often the entry point, the, what we start with when we go into a village is actually forming a savings group of women. So 10 to 15 women come together, And the first thing that they start is very small savings, like just about 10 rupees a week, which is like 12 pence, little amounts of uh, uh, saving. Now, what does that do? It actually, when they need money, they can take loans from their small group uh, that they have. The earlier practice was that they went to moneylenders, and often they had to give as mortgage their jewelry or a little asset, their goats, their buffalo, and sometimes even land. So we generally start with what we call self-help groups, these are savings groups, but they become the platform on which we actually bring in other interventions. We uh, speak to women in these small collectives about how change can happen, new practices about farming, how they could start enterprises with the loans that they can take from this group. We link these groups up. With banks. Now, we're talking about really women living in very remote villages. Many of them have never really seen a bank before. They don't know what a bank account is, they don't know what financial transactions are. And so these are the women that we actually bring into this fold of regularly savings. And once they realize how important that is, it evolves over time. Um, Starting from a very small amount of 10 rupees a month. These women now save often up to 100, 200 rupees uh, a month. Um, It's also that it builds bonds between members of the group. I mean, I need a loan, my uh, co-member also needs a loan, my need is greater. The group discusses that amongst themselves and it builds that collective. I mean, these are people from different backgrounds. (laughs) You have people from lower castes. you have people from religious uh, minorities, all of them working together and building, uh, 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 you know, a group that stands up for them. These groups often go on to do much more work in terms of development at the village level. I mean, there are some rules that these groups also have. That if any member comes in, she's been beaten by her husband. The group collectively will go and to put pressure on her husband, sit outside the home, and shame the man into not. Uh, doing this again. So it's standing up for each uh, other that these groups do. So it goes beyond savings then. So that's our entry point into uh, uh, the villages that we work in, starting with these savings groups. It emerges as a very strong platform where other activities and other interventions uh, can be uh, laid out. I mean, Many times these women take a pledge that they will educate their girl child. They will ensure that their girls also get to eat the way their sons get to eat. I mean, in India, for girls, often the words that they hear about is unwanted. I mean, they were born, their their family wanted a boy, a girl was born, they're unwanted. It's always told back to them. They're unwanted, they're neglected. They're underdeveloped because in terms, the distribution of food, I mean, I've seen this myself when I go into villages, so the, the father gets to eat first, the sons get to eat after that, The mother eats then, and whatever is left over is for the girls. So if this socialization process is ingrained in you from when you're a a child, you come to accept that. And this is what we try to change by saying that you can save. And often the savings of these women, so many times uh, they come into the group and they say, our husbands are asking us to take a loan because we need to buy crop seed. That increases their importance in the household. Okay. That they have money now. That they can say, "I brought this into the family," and that's when change starts to happen. It's not something immediate. It takes time. It takes a lot of perseverance to bring uh, uh, that out. But yes, it does happen. I mean, I want
0: to let park for just a second on that whole issue of, uh, of of coming together as a group because I think for all of us here, well, that seems, you know, I mean. It, it, Seems fairly normal that you could come together as a group and find that sort of solidarity. But it's actually not at all obvious uh, in most uh, of these very, very rural and remote villages that women could simply walk around freely uh, and have that. Say just a little bit about that and then why, for them, it's so personally important to, to, to be together, just to meet together.
1: Um, so, there are many restrictions on women you can 't go to particular houses, so if you belong to a certain caste, you cannot go to another house. So, where are these meetings supposed to be held if it 's held in someone 's house, you will know that certain women will not be able to come there men folk don 't understand I mean why are you giving ten rupees over here, twelve pence every month? What is this going to achieve it 's such a small amount uh, of money. So it's also to negotiate that space of having to convince others in their home that this is important. And that is why we focus so much on building their confidence to be able to negotiate uh, uh, that space, to be able to say with confidence that even if the person belongs to a low caste, I'm going to go to our home for our village meeting. These groups break those barriers between communities. And it's in line with the pluralistic ethos of all of uh, the foundation's work across our sectors, bring uh, communities together, break those barriers, because it's when people start working together that they really learn to respect each other and the diversity that exists. So it is not easy for these women to negotiate that space. But it has happened. And in Gujarat, for example, where we have some of our strongest uh, uh, women's groups, many of them have actually federated to form federations at higher levels, to actually deal directly with government to get development into their uh, uh, villages. And that is really powerful because these women now stand up and say, we got this development in our uh, villages. We also have some innumerable success stories where women who have grown as leaders from the self-help groups that were started are now members of the local self-government, elected representatives of their uh, people, and they carry with them the values of honesty, transparency, and going back to your community to understand what its needs are. So those values then go up in, at higher levels of the government. So I remember here by Ben is a a lady who started uh, as a leader from one of our (laughs) self-help groups. Today she is the Sarpanch of her area. It's a really uh, eminent post. And when I went to meet her, she said one thing, people tell me, you take a bribe. And she said, I'll never, because the values that I learned in the institutions that I grew up in, in a way, taught me that you cannot, uh, uh, you know, take a bribe, it's wrong. So it's also that those values then are ingrained. We now do not work with Hereby Ben, but she carries that message of honesty and standing up for her values at at the different level that she works in. So it is very powerful. These women go on to become role models. People say, if Hereby Ben could do that, I can too. So it it breaks that hesitation of holding back.
0: I mean, to say a little bit more about... um not only role models, but of course, saving 10 rupees a month, et cetera. I mean, once that's happened, of course, then there's, uh, that's still a very long way from reaching self-sufficiency. I mean, what's sort of the next step, if you will, uh, uh, in, in, in the work, uh, once, once the groups have begun uh, meeting together, uh, they're, they're doing the savings, uh, what next? How, how can they actually earn more money,
1: for example? So we do link them up to uh, gov- uh, to banks, where these groups get loans and they start productive activities so a member wants to take a loan to buy a buffalo for example a, a person wants to take a woman member wants to take a loan to buy a, a, a herd of goats to become a livelihood activity. Uh, Sometimes a sewing machine so that they can start uh, stitching and earning an income. A small shop uh, collectively selling their produce. So there are many, many numerous uh, uh, examples of women then graduating to taking up enterprises. For us, we feel that economic empowerment is actually the first step towards social empowerment. When a woman is confident that she can earn money, she can contribute to the household income, there is an increase in respect for her within the household. So moving on to enterprises, building the capacity and the confidence of these women to actually do different types of activities, that is then our next uh, uh, step in that process of empowerment. So the self-help group, the savings, is the first step, and we build on that the uh, uh, starting of enterprises, women led enterprises.
0: And so, what do these enterprises look like? What are they doing? I mean, tell us a, l- a little bit about the varieties of those, maybe in, in, a, in a couple of the states.
1: So, it's a range of interventions. I mean, the photograph over there is a group of women who are actually uh, established a solar powered irrigation system for vegetable farming. Um, And they collectively sell uh, uh, these vegetables and earn an income. I mean, each one of them, if they had to go to the market, it's difficult for them. They lose out on other work that they could have done. So they take it in turns to collectively sell their produce from uh, the market. They run this solar uh, irrigation system with very strict norms. I mean, each one of them plants a certain uh, uh, amount, uh, a certain crop not the water guzzling crops, because there's not enough water to go around. So that's one example of a productive uh, enterprise.
0: Uh, Can I just very quickly, I mean, what would AKF's role have been in that, for example? What did we actually do to help them do that?
1: The technology. So we brought the technology into uh, the area, the solar technology, gave them the confidence that this could work. I mean, this is something quite new in that area. worked out the economics of doing vegetable farming together, shared that with them so that it is not something that you're going to go down this and make a loss uh, later on, helped them to actually come together as a group. How do you access markets? Which markets can you go to? How can you work that out? So it's a lot of dialogue. We never take the decisions for them. They take the decisions. We facilitate that process. We are there to help them along the way, but we also know when we have to step back because it's self-reliance that we're interested in bringing about. We don't want them to depend on <laughs> us. We want them to stand for themselves uh, then. I mean, This photograph is about non-timber forest produce, which is collected in the tribal areas of Telangana by women. They never get a proper price for that because they have to uh, uh, deal with a long chain of money lenders. So it's a collective that came together And they have it in bulk, so when you have a lot of produce, you can get a better price. You can also go to a more distant market. So there's a range of interventions that actually happen. Another example is of an agricultural tools library. So as small farmers, you cannot really buy your own equipment. So it's a women's collective that came together and got a government subsidy to actually buy agricultural equipment, which they hire out like a library. So if I'm a small farmer and I need a little hoe, I don't have to go and buy it. I can borrow it for the time I need it from my women's collective and till my land and return it back. So it's many very innovative uh, enterprises that have uh, uh, begun and continue. And how many
0: groups like that would we be working with right now in India?
1: We've set up over 10,000 self-help groups. Uh,
0: uh, 10,000, with how many people? So every group
1: has about 15 uh, uh, women members. So it's uh, it's 150,000 women that are members of our uh, self-help groups. Many of them have federated. Um, So in Gujarat, for example, we have about 50 federations that have also emerged. These federations have actually moved on to issues uh, which are beyond uh, uh, economic empowerment and are actually dealing with issues like social empowerment, access to entitlements, things like widows' pension. We have a large number of single women uh, in India, In 587 million women uh, in India, and almost 58 million single uh, women. 80% of them are widows. So while the government does provide a pension for widows, accessing that pension <coughs> is quite... Uh, a maze of forms that have to be filled and all of that. These federations actually facilitate that process. And it is something of pride that a woman, a widow, doesn't have to depend on someone then for her livelihood. So it's, it's a range of activities that these federations now do. For some of them, we've actually stepped back. We don't really uh, uh, you know, work with them so actively because they're now, in a way, beyond us. They're very, very empowered. I mean, I could get a lesson or two on empowerment from some of our women uh, uh, representatives. So it's, 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 very, it's very powerful to see them. Uh, it is. Yeah, I, mean, I can yeah. tell you
0: from sitting. They're tough, <laughs> tough ladies. Yes, um, yes. I'm, uh, uh, and the, and the, the things that they do. But the other thing, I think, is that um, it would be interesting. I mean, this has been going on for 30 years, 30-plus yeah. uh, in Gujarat. Um, but it's not limited to Gujarat. Say a little bit about just the self-help movement generally um, uh, in India as a whole.
1: So, AKF has been a pioneer of the self-help group movement in India and we're really happy to say that many of the learnings and all of that, we, we work very closely with the government. So we share a lot of the learnings from our work with the government and it's now a national program. Uh, under the the government of India. So the government of India is now mandated to form self-help groups of women across the country. And we're very happy to have been a part of the process to actually show how it uh, works, and now for the government to actually take it and replicate it. So in Bihar, for example, there are a large number of self-help groups that have been formed under government programs. We are currently working with them on enterprise activities. Um, and taking them to the next level of uh, empowerment. It's a powerful movement. So the chief minister of Bihar last year, just before the elections, he uh, was interacting with a group of uh, uh, women leaders. And one woman actually stood up and she said, "Uh, it's all very well you talk about development, but do you know that our men, after drinking, they come back home and actually beat us up. Bihar has one of the worst rates of domestic violence. So the chief minister said that if you all elect me again, elections were around the corner, I will bring in, uh, I will ban alcohol in the state. And well, he won the elections and the first ordinance that he issued was a ban on alcohol in the state. So Bihar is, it's illegal now to uh, you know, drink there or carry liquor. So the power of this movement is very uh, uh, strong and it it is bringing about change at quite higher levels uh, beyond just the economic empowerment, but also looking at social issues that uh, uh, make women that deprive women of their real rights. So it's, it's a movement that has now started, and we're happy to have been pioneers in that process.
0: When you think about the, the, the challenges for women in India, I mean, there is this issue of coming together, solidarity, um, being able to, to, finding self-esteem, finding courage in numbers, if you will, saving some assets, um, making money. But there's a whole issue of time. Where do they find the time to do this? Tell us a little bit about how, how that fits into our work and why that's an issue, I suppose I should start with that.
1: So a women's day never ends, as we uh, uh, say. Huh? uh, (laughs) Some things aren't limited to each (laughs) So it starts really early. And for women in most of our villages who have to uh, get up really early because there are no toilets in the villages that we work in, uh, for many of us who have access to a toilet at all times of the day, I don't think we can ever realize what it means for a woman not to have a toilet, to have to wait until it is dark, for her to actually go out, to limit how, what you drink during the day, what you eat. And if you're unwell, it is really a bad situation. Uh, linked with that is also the fact that you have to go scrounging around for water. In, collecting drinking water for the home is a woman's load, so to say. So a lot of our work has also been on the dignity of women. Sanitation, to stop that feeling of only having that thought the whole uh, day. Drinking water, bringing drinking water facilities closer to where women live. Um, and that has reduced the drudgery and the time that women would actually spend in going in search of uh, uh, water, being harassed if they had to defecate on the lands of upper caste uh, 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 people, having their daughters, uh, uh, you know, go through that uh, agony almost every day. So a lot of our interventions are also in building these services to make the lives of women uh, better. Drinking water, sanitation. That is a critical uh, intervention for us and one that really targets the needs uh, of women.
0: I I think that point about uh, time there is really important. I mean, the estimates for collecting water and and firewood, because that's the other important thing. It's something between, it can range between three and six hours a day, depending on how how far uh, a woman has to walk. Yes, I mean, you're right
1: there, and it's it's also a very difficult job. Um, You have to walk into forest areas that are dangerous to collect uh, uh, firewood and bring that back uh, home. Um, Water, you carry it on your head, it's, it's very, very uh, tedious over long distances. It affects uh, 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 women uh, physically uh, as well. So yes, I mean, and to have to collect, it, collect water two to three times uh, in, a, in a day. Uh, we've also looked at bringing in uh, better technologies, like the use of biogas for cooking, also promoting the use of liquid petroleum gas for cooking, so it's cleaner uh, uh, fuel. Uh, it, within the household, it is not women who are always inhaling that suit and, uh, uh, you know, smoke. So, a lot of our work is also on building the environment for women to actually have a better uh, quality of life.
0: Can you say just a little bit, I mean, let's, let's talk a bit about sanitation here. You have someone who's very proud uh, uh, with, with her one of her toilets that, that we've worked with her to help construct. Uh, but how did we work with her? I mean, what's AKF's role in this? What exactly? Uh, are we doing uh, in that regard? We're, are we not? Are we selling them? Are we? How does it work?
1: So sanitation has been uh, uh, a program that we've been working on for quite a, a number of years. Um, uh, we go into uh, villages and promote uh, a lot of work around behavior change. I mean, to build the demand uh, for toilets. In 2014, uh, the Prime Minister announced a massive uh, program, the Clean India Mission, the Swachh Bharat Mission, and he actually made a request to uh, AKF to do much more in this area. So in 2014, we actually launched a much larger initiative across our program states, reaching out to over 100,000 households. And um, uh, the work that we do is create the demand for sanitation in the village through a lot of behaviour change interventions, promote hygienic practices, and facilitate that households then link up. The government has quite a good subsidy uh, to construct uh, toilets. It's it's enough for them to build a, a toilet. We train masons, so when the demand is created, the village has a trained cadre of masons that can come in and build uh, 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 those toilets. We ensure that the quality of construction is really uh, uh, good, so that these toilets are always um, uh, used and maintained. And more importantly, we ensure access to water in the toilets. I mean, that for us, is uh, uh, something that we have also demonstrated to the government, because without access to water, these toilets will run into disuse after some time. So that's the kind of it. so it's a range of interventions that we do in uh, the villages to actually bring sanitation uh, uh, to these communities.
0: And who pays for them?
1: So uh, the government subsidy comes in after a toilet has been built. So now these self-help groups actually step in and they provide the loans and the financing. So there are many innovative community models that have actually uh, uh, emerged in these areas. Loans from the self-help group to actually to buy the equipment, and then the subsidy comes in, and those loans are then uh, uh, repaid. So again, it has been the bedrock of uh, uh, the savings that have helped to build uh, uh, these toilets.
0: So you have a whole network of women doing women doing project finance all over India that bankers in London will understand. Um, it was really quite quite powerful. I mean, uh, say say uh, if you could just a, a, a little bit uh, more about uh, the, I mean because sanitation is important from a time perspective, but it's also important from a health perspective. So, say just something about that. So,
1: uh, like for women who have who did not have access to toilets and. Uh, having to control what they ate, their water, over a period of time it affects their uh, uh, health. There are safety issues when you have to go out and defecate in the open. Many times women have told us about snake bites, about scorpions, when they have to go out and defecate in the open. So it's the health of the individual, but it's also more importantly the health of the village. Because if one person has a toilet but the other household does not, and is defecating out in the open. It affects the health of the entire village. So when we do our village planning, we actually prepare a map on the ground where we have the community actually map out which are the households that have toilets, which are the ones that do not. Why? Uh, uh, do people not have toilets? What are the constraints? And it becomes a community dialogue. And it becomes an issue that we all need to collectively now build toilets. So we're really proud to say that we're moving towards open defecation, free habitations. That is our uh, uh, goal. I mean, many times, like the 2nd of October... The government actually came into some of the villages that we work in and declared them after checking it through as open defecation-free habitations and announced that on a wider platform. So rather than it becoming an individual decision, it is again something that is a shared responsibility so that the health of the village in a way can be uh, uh, secured.
0: Tanya, you've talked a lot about the government tonight. I mean, we've talked about uh, individuals, we've talked about communities, but we we hear a lot about uh, government programs. How are we working with government, and I guess, and why? Um,
1: Um, All of our programs are aligned with government priorities. India's quite different from other countries in the sense that uh, the government is the largest development player. We're small relative to that, And the role that we play is actually to develop models that work and then share the learning with the government and support them in replication. An an example that I could share, which is a very recent example, so we had the chief minister of Bihar visit one of our villages that had actually uh, uh, was running their own drinking water uh, uh, system. So this is a central uh, uh, system, and then there are standposts to different uh, houses. And the chief minister had heard about uh, uh, this, and he just wanted to visit it. By the time we got to know that the chief minister of the state was actually visiting uh, one of our program villages, it was too late and he'd moved on. But the message that he actually took was that this was really run by the community uh, on its own. That's a photograph of one of the standposts. These are decentralized standposts connected to a single uh, system where we test the quality uh, of water. This is a service that the community pays for so that it can run uh, the, uh, the motor and it works uh, without our involvement uh, anymore. The government of Bihar has now come back to us and said that we want your technical support to replicate this in across the state. And they said, we've got the money, we just need your technical support and how you really uh, did it. So that's how we actually work with the government. Develop a model and then work with the government to replicate it across the state. We will never be able to reach the 38 districts of uh, Bihar, but with the government, partnering with them we can so all of our interventions are very closely aligned with government priorities and we have a very strong dialogue with the government at both the national and the state level and even at the district uh, uh, level so at every level of the government we work quite closely uh, uh, with them
0: i mean that that um, story of scale i think is quite encouraging um, and I think as I, I, this is my last question to you before we open it up to questions from the audience. Um, but, you know, uh, tell me a little bit, you know, when you, you, start, when you started the conversation, um, one of the things that you talked about was how dire things are uh, for, for many, many women in India. Um, and, and it would be easy to assume that um, this work is somehow, that the, the, the challenge is too big, uh, the, the, the work is somewhat hopeless, uh, you might say. I mean, how are we making a difference? I mean, you've been working in development for 27 years. Tell me, where does the impact come in uh, and and what gives you hope for the future about this kind of work?
1: So, I mean, the impact is very much at individual levels. I mean, we see uh, some of the women that we have worked with become role models. Um, I mean, I, I can share uh, sorry, so story. Uh, The first girl in uh, the urban areas of Patna, we work in an extremely poor urban slum settlement in Patna, who started working after she had been trained uh, in retail at uh, uh, one of our adolescent girls' uh, centers. I mean, this girl was brought to the center by her mother's friend because they wanted to have a safe place where she could stay when her mother went out. Her father was an alcoholic, and he was really just waiting for the first per, for first man to walk in to have Sony married off, and uh, you know, just go well. Sony uh, uh, was provided, yeah, that's her photograph. Uh, was provided scholastic support. She's currently uh, uh, studying to pass her grade 10 examination. But more importantly, she trained to work at Cafe Coffee Day. I mean, she's never drunk coffee in her life, but she serves coffee now to customers, and she earns an income. And her father in front of the community actually said, who says I'm going to get Sony married? She now is valuable. She brings in uh, uh, what I couldn't do. I... Sony is doing, she's she's provided financial security for my family, so my son can also go to school. So we see uh, change at at a very individual level. Uh, This is a community where girls were not allowed to even walk to the end of the road. And Sony now gets ready every morning and goes to work, and she comes uh, back every evening. She is a role model for the community. Uh, Similar to her, we've trained girls on mushroom cultivation. I mean, everyone would think, what are mushrooms in uh, this area? So I was there about two weeks back, and there's this girl called Babita, and she tells me she sells mushrooms like 700 rupees worth every week, and she's saving that money, and she's going to go to college because her parents couldn't afford college and the transport that was involved. She said, I don't need to ask my parents for money. So when we see that change happening, it is, uh, uh, it's very humbling, it's also very, very satisfying, and these girls go on to become role uh, uh, models for us. When we see by Ben conducting her panchayat meeting and sitting there and saying that I will bring development to my uh, uh, village, it does mean a lot. Uh, uh, for the work that we do. So we see a lot of change at the individual level. We also see a lot of change at the society level, the community. When men start respecting and giving women the dignity that is rightfully uh, theirs, when they stand up in a meeting and say, we were able to do this because the women uh, uh, helped us. So we, we see that change at different uh, uh, levels in our work.
0: Well, I think our time uh, together has come to a close. I want to thank you all, uh, and if I could ask you to please give Tinny a round of applause.